Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Mike Markets podcast. Before we begin, just a reminder, this material is presented solely for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not to be construed as a recommendation, solicitation, or an offer to buy or sell long or short any securities, commodities, or related financial instruments. Please contact a licensed professional before making any investment or trading decisions. And with that, I would like to introduce today's guest. I'm very excited. I've been trying to get him on for a very long time. We have Luke Groman. Luke is founder of the Forest of the Trees at FTT. Uh, Luke has become one of the most respected names in the global research sector, having been in the industry for 20 plus years and earning a reputation as a client-focused analyst with unparalleled ability to make broad connections between increasingly siloed industry news and drawing conclusions that help investors understand the bigger picture. And with that, Luke, just in case this is your first time on our podcast, can you just give our audience a little bit of background on yourself? Sure, absolutely. So I've been in finance for, uh, I guess, going on 29 years now. Um, I started off in investment research as an analyst uh, and then moved over to institutional uh, equity sales, uh, equity uh, in, in, in research, and became one of the founding editors of a weekly product um, at a firm uh, in, uh, called Midwest Research, called Her in the Midwest, where we were known for very bottoms up fundamental data points, uh, our channel check research. So we're talking to distributors, suppliers of, of companies and building up a mosaic. And, and uh, we were very good at that. Um, I took that data, I would read it all uh, voraciously. And I just had a kind of a knack for connecting dots and organizing the data from a bottoms up perspective uh, into a sort of thematic and, and macro type piece for clients ended up being a very well, uh, well read piece by thousands of the firm's clients every Friday. Uh, reprised that role again at a firm called Cleveland Research Company um, uh, that uh, myself and several other partners started in uh, uh, 2006, I guess. Um, and the research we were doing uh, really helped a number of clients of the firm uh, position well for what happened in 08 and 09. And into that and on the other side of that, I was spending a lot more of my time doing macro and thematic work. Uh, and in 2014, I left F, uh, uh, Cleveland Research Company and formed FFTT, uh, focusing on that full time. So uh, I connect dots um, and uh, read a large amount of publicly available data and, and try to organize that in a way to identify different themes and bottlenecks that are developing in various different markets. So that's uh, that's the nickel tour of my background. Excellent. Ralph, you want to get started in with the questions? Yes, I'd love to. So, Luke, you recently did a very interesting podcast with Nate Hagens, uh, on, on whom I tend to blow hot and cold, but generally I like him and I really like his his podcast as well. And I particularly found interesting the kind of combination you drew between, let's say, the bond market and the energy market. And I'd like to start off with a very general question that I think is also very interesting for our audience. So uh, what do you think the future is going to bring? Are we heading for a crisis? Are we heading for real troubles in the global energy and bond markets? Or do you think that there will be an overall soft landing and that the panic, uh, you know, kind of the, the panic mongers are overblowing the situation? I think we are in a structural energy supply issue relative to the bond market. In other words, it's not that we're running out of, of oil in particular. It's that we are we need the price of oil to remain expensive and rise over time in order to continue to grow supplies enough to support the economic growth we need to support the record debt that we have, particularly at the sovereign level. The problem is that same massive amount of sovereign debt does not react well to rising energy inflation. And as energy inflation goes up, uh, as we saw in August and September of this year, the bond market starts uh, essentially throwing up on itself. So you, we're in a catch-22. 
we need more expensive oil and more expensive commodities to continue to grow uh, the supplies of those commodities to support the growth. We need to support the debt, but the debt is so big it can't it can't um, it, it it can't abide the rise in inflation. We need to grow the supplies, and that means one of two outcomes ultimately. And as a practice, so one of two outcomes is either. We get deflation, we don't get the supplies. It's a very binary outcome. It's sort of very hard landing. Or we get a sustained inflationary um, outcome, which ultimately probably gets very, very inflationary because again, the bond market is not going to abide inflation without yield curve control or something. So as a practical matter, what we've been seeing in increasingly compressed time cycles is hard landing, uh-oh, we can't hard land because oh, by the way, the debt is so big you will have sovereign defaults. The problem is now at the sovereign level. Uh, so then you get weakening dollar inflation and, and they sort of are in the, the Goldilocks period of, of from here to here keeps getting shorter and shorter in terms of, oh, hard landing quick, BTFP, not QE, weaken the dollar, TGA release, do something. Okay, we're okay. And then you get to the other side of it. Oh, inflation, oil's too high. Oh, growth is too good. No one wants bonds and the bond debt is so high, the sovereign debt is so high, that creates problems. Oh, we need to slow. Okay, strengthen the dollar. And, and it, it pretty soon we're coming to a point where they're going to have to make sort of the final choice, right? Which is, in my opinion, it's going to be ultimately inflate sort of QE, yield curve control, whatever they call it. So it's really a rolling choice between those two very binary outcomes. And those binary outcomes are just a function of the energy situation and the debt situation and the two of them in the context of each other. So would you, go, go ahead. So now would you would you still call because you 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 have like a great one liners. You kind of you coined many of great one liners and I can I, I admit it sometimes I use them without giving you credit, which makes me feel horribly bad. But do you still believe, as, as you argued so convincingly, that energy ultimately is the master resource, right? And when we talk about currencies, when we talk about industries, that ultimately it is connected to energy and what's happening in the energy market. And that given the current debt situation and rising interest rates, that for some energy producers, it might be more profitable to leave the energy in the ground instead of getting it out. And that they have an incentive actually not to, to bring energy to the market, but to kind of hold it back. Do you think this could also be an issue in the years to come? It could be. It I think it depends on how the monetary system evolves. I think it depends on how the geopolitical situation evolves. Uh, so it, it is. It is a. It is a problem. Um, you know, you just you 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 can have brief periods of negative real interest rates, but you would be a fool as an energy exporter to sell your energy for bonds at negative real interest rates relative to uh, what energy likely has to do over time. Uh, in order to keep incentivizing the growth in that energy production. And then where does that leave the renewable market? Because it seems so far what we're seeing is that you renewables are just not feasible in a non-NERP world, right? Um, and so uh, how do you see this adding to uh, the energy problem? And also, how do central banks react to this? It's a great question. You've had a number of great tweets in the last couple of weeks, Tracy, about uh, exactly that, highlighting some of these stories where these windmills, and particularly windmills, solar, um, to a lesser extent, some of the EV, etc., um, they don't work. They don't work unless you have very, very low interest rates. Um, and by very, very low, I mean, you know, near zero and probably negative real, uh, real rates. And I think that's a little bit of the paradox, and it's a it's a part of the paradox I hadn't really fully thought through up until more recently, unfortunately, because the stocks have done have been great shorts for as as a group for the last you know six to eight months, maybe twelve months. But it's the same paradox that Powell's been faced with as it relates to shale, which is it's 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 very interest rate sensitive, all relative to conventional production at least. And it is has a much bigger decline rate than conventional production. And it's been sort of the biggest marginal supply source over the last decade for the world. And so it, it leads to this paradox for this cycle that has really not existed 
I'll say in a long time, probably since the 70s, but but perhaps even longer, which is an attempt to fighting in an attempt to fight inflation by raising interest rates, the central banks are actually increasing in the case of the renewables, they're increasing fossil fuel demand on a lag, right? There's a period of time where it sort of works to reduce, but ultimately raising rates makes these projects uneconomic. They begin to shut down and energy demand, fossil fuel demand is simply not as uh, cyclical. It's not as, as, as uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Elastic, elastic. inelastic. It's, elastic. yes, exactly. It's not as elastic as the economic cycle. So you raise rates and it works for a little bit and then you start blowing up wind and solar and then your effective fossil fuel demand starts going up at some point into the cycle. And I think we're kind of getting to the early part of that cycle. So I think you're gonna to start to see demand for fossil fuels, global, local, actually start to rise more than the economy based on what rates have done to renewables. And I don't think central bankers have thought a lot about that. I don't think the bond market has thought a lot about that yet. And it's the same kind of dynamic. At the same time that is happening, what we have seen with shale growth, right, is yes, right now it's still growing. Our U.S. oil production is still growing a lot. We've been anywhere from 70 to 90 percent of global production growth over the last decade, depending on who you ask. A lot of that has been shale. Rig count in the U.S. has been falling for a year. And sooner or later, production follows rig count. I mean, they've been able to sort of separate those two in theory, you know, longer laterals, better technology, greater productivity, whatever. Sooner or later, the production follows rig count. So you're into the situation where this cycle rate hikes are going to hurt. They aren't going to. They are starting to hurt the alternatives that were reducing your fossil fuel demand. And they're starting to hurt the biggest marginal source of production, your supplies. So your supplies are going to be having a downward trend, your marginal supplies, and your marginal demand is going to be having an upward. So I think paradoxically, the rate hikes are going to have a short-term deflationary impact on oil, which I think we've probably seen most of. And now we're get transitioning to this period where the rate hike lagged effect is going to be good for prices because you're going to have a downward pressure on supply and an upward marginal demand pressures from it. So essentially the Fed is creating inflation by hiking rates. Right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's, you know, especially when layered with what the White House did last year with the SPR. And I understand that there was a, a geopolitical impetus. Fine. They were price controls. End of the day, that was a price control. And we all know how price controls work. They work in the short run. Absolutely, they work. And they did work. And now, you know, but in the end, you're sending the market a false signal. And it, come back, it comes, always comes back to bite you in the rear end. And so now we have to layer that on, too, which is the credibility of the USSPR to scare the oil markets again has been greatly reduced. I mean, I mean, it's who knows where the bottom of that is. It isn't zero is what I'm told. I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know, yeah. 400 something. Million. It's not zero. So uh, that only further potentially increases the risk of, of upside. All else equal, it takes away, you know, it, it emboldens someone who might otherwise say, well, they could SPR me, you know, so to speak. Uh, their ability to SPR oil longs is, has been greatly reduced by what they did last year in the context of all this. And then, so what does the Fed, you know, if we have rising energy prices, and that's basically the major input cost to all businesses, right? And so ultimately, that's going to create more inflation. So where does that leave the Fed? I mean, are they just, they, are they going to have to accept higher than two, their 2%? Or, <laughs> you know, or are they just going to keep waffling around, <laughs> in your opinion? I think they'll probably keep waffling around because they don't know what else to do. Um, the right thing to have done was in 2021 cap yields, let inflation go to 10 to 15% for three years, get the debt, the GDP down to a level that would have allowed them to credibly raise rates to whatever level needed without threatening the solvency of the United States government itself. They didn't do that. And so now 
they're quickly getting to a danger zone where um, the, what something we've uh, uh, James Turk introduced us to the concept. They've been thinking about it in broad terms for a long time, but this insolvency ratio. In other words, gross interest expense divided by federal revenues. Uh, whenever that number goes over 30%, historically, is what James Turk said, is when you start getting into monetary economic currency problems. The United States is at 25% now. The last time it was at 25% on the upside was like 1984, 85. Um, and it stayed up near there, but it never broke 30. Like, we're going to break 30 soon it's not even unless they get rates down and dollar down a lot and soon we're going to break 30. and that the way to think about this is the government flexibility is is completely gone in terms of reacting to higher energy prices energy oil goes to 100 the, the insolvency ratios at 32 35 now you're spending 35 percent of every revenue dollar just on interest and then you have another 70% of every revenue dollar you have to spend just on entitlements, social security, health, and human services. And then, oh, by the way, you got two wars you're sporting. You got to spend another 25% of every revenue dollar on that. Now we're already clearly, we're at like 130% already. Um, and that gets into this very nasty dynamic where what's the what's the Fed gonna do? They have by by not acting boldly enough. And, and unfortunately, they thought they were acting boldly enough by being Volcker. They couldn't be Volcker. Volcker's debt to GDP was 30%, not 130%. Volcker's deficit to GDP was three. He could take it to five and a half. Powell started with six. And most importantly, Volcker's net international investment position was positive 10. In other words, he, he would raise rates and strengthen the dollar, and the capital would come back here because it was positive 10 meant our capital, we had more capital overseas than foreigners had here. Net, he started tightening the net international investment position of the US at negative 65. The capital's all here. The milkshake got sucked up here. 18 trillion is sitting here. So as the dollar goes up and they owe this dollar debt, guess where the capital goes? It goes home, like the Japanese are doing, like the Chinese are doing. Like, so, Oil is a forcing function in all this. Like if oil gets too high, that it will expose, that forces the Fed to make a choice. As long as oil can be kept sort of 70 to 90, I think the Fed can sort of muddle along. If you get, you know, now the problem, of course, is the break-evens on oil and shale keep itching higher. They're not at 70 yet, probably. Although if you talk to some people in the industry, they'll tell you whatever the price is, that's the break-even because the services costs keep going up, blah, 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 blah. Um, so if you can keep it in that level, then they probably can muddle through. But if it gets to 90 to 100, if there's a geopolitical incident, it goes to 110, that is so decent. And similarly, if it, if it crashes, if you get a crash in oil prices out of that range that is sustainable, that lasts long enough, that starts really taking rig count down, where it impairs, again, the credibility of U.S. supply growth for three years, like we saw post-COVID, like we saw post-2014-15, uh, that's not helpful either. So it's it's a very, you know, they've painted themselves into a corner by just not taking their pain up front and being bold with inflation instead of trying to be Volcker when they couldn't be Volcker. So it's oil's the forcing function, in my opinion. Do, do you think well, that kind of do, do you think that the Chinese will kind of play along and try to use their strategic petroleum reserve to keep uh, the oil price below 90, below 80, or keep it somewhere between 70 and 80? You would think probably on on some level there's there's it's one of these weird things, at least as I see it, where there's there's both a competition slash cold war almost between us on some things, and then also some cooperation on some things. And and there are, I think if it's in China's interest to do that, that's what they'll do. Um, and so I think it would be more a function of sort of enlightened China self interest, and to the extent it helps manage the situation a bit, because. You know, in theory, you want to transition from sort of, yeah, I, I think that's 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 probably what they'll they would do is if it's in their interest with some help to the U.S. to try to stabilize things, because I don't think it's in anybody's interest for this thing to really uh, come unwound. Um, but that then is geopolitical, right? There's going to be an ask on the other side uh, from the Chinese.
Do you think that if, if let's say, hypothetically, and also kind of just if we want to play through some of the worst case scenarios, the fallout, of course, would be unequally distributed. So when we look at, you know, at, at the Middle East, if we look at Asia, if we look at China, it, at, when you look at the United States, when you look at Europe, who do you think in, in the, just kind of as a thought experiment, if we would play through the worst case scenario, who do you think would suffer the most in that scenario? Who do you think has kind of, is, is least prepared for a worst case scenario and who do you think has at least some structural cushion if you want to absorb some of these macroeconomic shocks i think it i guess it depends on what the worst case scenario is what um you know what 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 would you say is the worst case scenario because there's is are we talking about war are we talking about uh are we talking about an oil supply shock what's what's the worst case scenario well, let's view? let's take an oil supply shock right maybe let's say the chinese don't act as you said and then this enlightened self-interest and they say we anticipate the war with the us we have to keep our spr filled so if the price goes to 90 100 we're not going to do anything about it let's take this as let's say scenario one so yeah if you if you say there's an oil price shock then you can understand using that then we can sort of build off um the the scenario analyses right so oil goes up you're going to push oil x or excuse me oil importing creditors of the united states into a current account deficit position so japan all of a sudden is running a current account deficit not a surplus they need to finance that what do they do they start selling dollar assets uh so that's going to start destabilizing the treasury market in the way we saw in August and September. And they won't be the only ones, by the way. The Europeans will be in, in a similar position, particularly Northern Europe, although they're not as big of, of, of treasury holders as, uh, as, as Japan. Um, you'll see that. So the, 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 you'll start to see rates rise in a disorderly fashion again. You'll start to see U.S. treasury auctions get bad again. You'll see the dollar go up again. Uh, that will then feed on itself into sort of the the investing regime that we saw in August and September, which is like you come in and the dollar's up a bit and 10-year bond is in the U.S. and around the world is down again. So rates are up again and stocks are down again and sort of wash, rinse, repeat on that. Now, if it's a real oil shock spike, that could be very violent very fast. So then you would get stocks down big, bonds down big, dollar up big, uh, euro, yen, all down big, uh, yuan probably down, but not as big as the yen or the uh, euro. Um, and so that gives you some sense of how, I think the financial impacts of that would be um, if, if you had that scenario. That would like crush EMs, right? So uh, it would, yes, it would, and it, it would crush EMs, and it would paradoxically um, force them to do more uh, de-dollarizing de de of their oil imports. Where all of a sudden they say, "Okay, we have a finite amount of dollars left, and once we run out of dollars, we're going to hyperinflate, right? We're going to have this Southeast Asia crisis, and we have two big dollar outflows. We have our dollar debt." payments and we have our dollar oil payments russia china will you facilitate doing these deals outside the dollar to preserve our dollar liquidity for debt and what that ultimately then does paradoxically is sends the dollar higher faster but it also say it also uh accelerates uh the treasury market issues because now everyone's going to be you know, dollar up, rates up, dollar up, rates up. And so it would be a very um, convex, I mean, it could all happen in a month. You could see, yes, it'd kill EMs paradoxically, that, you know, you could see the tenure in the treasury, uh, or it'd be really bad for EMs. Paradoxically, you could see uh, the tenure yield in the United States go from four and a half to six and a half in a month. And that's so that's that's where that net international investment position. It just foreigners have 18. Yes, they have 12, 13 dollar, 12 to 13 trillion in U.S. dollar debt, according to the BIS world globally, offshore, rest of world. They have 18 trillion net of U.S. dollar assets. 
And that's the thing that's so different versus every other cycle. They can just keep selling dollar assets until their hands bleed. They're not going to run out before they break the treasury market. And we've now seen that multiple times. And so it, that's why I think the oil side of it is so key. If you get an oil spike, um, it will very quickly threaten the functioning of the U.S. Treasury market. I mean, oil was at 82. We had a five basis point tail on a 30-year auction last week. Like, imagine if oil was at 110 and rising fast. Or imagine if there was a, some sort of geopolitical issue. Uh, you would You would then have to, the Fed would have to be getting involved into oil at 90, 100, 110, whatever. Absolutely. How much of this would you, would you argue is politics, economics, and and let's say just you know kind of the natural limits to to resource extraction in in a sense is for example, do you think the United States? I mean, it's definitely true. I would argue for Europe, but do you think that also the United States are kind of putting themselves into a bind by not using all the energy resources they would have at their disposal, and that maybe an optimist could say that a little bit the crisis, however harsh it will be that is unfolding, will also lead to a realignment with reality. I think both you and Tracy. Have alluded to this, right? I think the idea that wind and solar will replace oil, coal, and gas, I think most people gradually, at least those who have a sense of reality left, start to say, okay, this is probably not going to work. And as interest rates go up, it's like a I don't want to use religious terminology, but it's like a cleansing fire in a sense, right? That many of the things that seemed idealistically very appealing are now crushing with reality. And it turns out that reality probably is going to be victorious in this. And do you think next year there are elections in the United Kingdom, there are elections in the United States, there are elections in the European Union that maybe gradually, at least in one or two of those elections, people with some kind of energy realism will get back into power, will get back into office and they can kind of push for, let's say, a more offensive approach towards towards energy extraction, whether it be in Alaska, whether it's building uh, the pipeline network in the United States, these kind of things. So do you say, well, even if that would happen, in order for these things to really have an impact, it's going to take five, six, seven, eight, ten years. So some kind of quote-unquote crisis is going to come, no matter who's going to be in charge next year. I, I think we have the resources. We, uh, the West broadly, I think we are largely... Politically, we are significantly politically hampering ourselves. There's a geology issue. I mean, some of it is just the treadmill effect. And as it relates to U.S. shale, we're doing whatever, uh, 9 million barrels, 10, something like that, 12 million barrels. I, I don't know the number off the top of my head. Uh, and all those things, yes, they decline at a declining rate. And some of them are old, so they're, they're not declining that fast. But the newer stuff's all declining very rapidly, and you have to overcome that. So there's a there's a geological effect, but there's there's a lot of resources that are being hamstrung or, or, or prevented from being accessed by uh, the political ideology around uh, climate slash, uh, um, you know, sort of the greens broadly. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to overcome that without a crisis uh, in energy. And it's going to have to be so unmistakable given how rabid um some of a lot of the proponents are of that ideology i don't think it can only be a little crisis i think it has to be like you said extraordinarily painful and very very obvious um and so much so that it indicts that ideology beyond sort of um uh, beyond beyond rebuke and so the problem is is once that happens there are some things we can do relatively quickly right in terms of hey i mean u.s president could sign a, a piece of paper and they could have rigs out in you know federal lands out west that are untapped probably i mean tracy would know this number but i would guess it would probably take three to six months at most you can oh. do it pretty fast yeah. but but you got to have that crisis first now we also have the, you know, this big landmass with one government. In Europe, I think it would be a lot harder given the multiple countries trying to agree on the same thing. Um, so that's the that's the challenge. I mean, it's there for the right price. And again, for the right price is the key um, because the the increase in production can be shut on and off so quickly. You need you, you, that actually helps you manage the price, right? When you see the consolidation in shale, 
with a couple big players, that's going to help you keep price at sort of a positive ROIC that continues to improve that, but on the other side, or improve the, um, the incentives. Uh, but on the other side of that, you have this bond market that is so oversized, federal sovereign debt in the U.S., sovereign debt in the West in particular, around the world as well, um, that gets destabilized by those prices. So you're, you're, these policymakers still tend to be very focused on the crisis that is right in front of me before the next election cycle and only one at a time. And the problem is, is this is very much a multi-pronged issue where the issues reflexively um, feed back into each other at the same time. And thus far, I've been uh, disappointed with policymakers' ability to hold sort of two opposing thoughts in their head at the same time and retain the ability to function. Um, they just haven't shown it. So unfortunately, I think it's going to take a really big sort of, you know, oh gosh, why is gasoline eight bucks in the U.S.? This is stupid. Why are we doing this type of moment um, to really incent that behavior in the U.S.? Um, Europe, it might even take more. I mean, eight bucks for you guys, I'm sure you're like, oh, that, that'd be great. But no, it's... <laughs> I I I don't like I don't want to put you on the spot, so you don't have to answer this question. But I, I would be remiss if I wouldn't ask it. I mean, do you think that that part of the problem is that we have a competency problem in in politics? I was thinking about this recently <laughs> when you when you look at the, for example, the price cap on, on Russian oil, right? I mean, I mean, everybody I talked to, at least to from the industry, was saying from you know somebody that Tracy and he talked to recently on uh, on the place your trades, right, with Dr. Anas Haji and others. They pretty much said from the start, this is not going to work, right? Uh, the the guys from Doomberg, I know that you do a lot with them as well they said the same thing and so everybody who talked to this tracy also right pretty much everybody who works with commodities said this is probably not going to work but everybody in the policy area or at least in brussels and washington was very excited about it now do you think they they know better and do it nonetheless to show just some action and say look we did something or do you think there is really a lack of people who have either experience in industry who have knowledge about commodity markets and that we really have a competency problem in politics so do you think that judgment is a little bit too harsh uh, I don't think it's I don't think it's too harsh. Um, I think it's I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I think it's partly a competency problem. And I think it's also a problem best stated by Upton Sinclair in the 30s, which is it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary is dependent upon his not understanding it. And so we have just too many people whose salary is dependent on them not understanding this. I mean, I saw this, you know, in 2016, um, you know, not to talk politics, but just as an example of when Trump got elected, there was nobody on the coasts of the United States who thought he had a chance. Now, I didn't think he would win, but being in the Rust Belt of America, I was seeing Trump signs everywhere. And I was seeing virtually no Hillary signs. And I remember saying to my wife, I said, something's going on here. I said, he has a, a much better chance of winning than anybody thinks. So this is gonna be a really tight race. And I remember mentioning that to people sort of in, on the coast and it would just, it would be like laughable. They would just laugh and laugh. And so it's a little bit of that same dynamic of you to be in the cool kids club, you had to say, you know, the $60 price on Russian oil will work. And if you argued against that, logically using facts and physics and economics you were out of the cool kids club and so it's it's a little bit of and oh by the way the cool kids club if you stay in it long enough in america at least you will be worth 10 to 20 to 50 million dollars after a decade or two so and you can bounce back and forth between policy and not policy which is how you get congress people in the united states who make 170,000 a year for 20 years worth $100 million. You do the math, you're like 170, they owe tax on that times 20 years, they should be worth about, maybe make some investment. They should be worth six, seven, $800,000. And instead they're worth 100 million. Wait, say that again, right? So there's a huge incentive to stay in the cool kids club and say whatever the cool kids are saying. And we've seen this across some other things over the last three years as well. So um, that's more what I, I think it's, it's, it's probably, I mean, it's probably a partially a competency thing, but it's mo I think it's mostly this, it, it's really a, it's like a religion. It's an ideology mm -hmm. thing. 
And then their incentive to sort of believe in the ideology, uh, you get really rich if you stay in the ideology. And if you're, if you blaspheme the ideology, you're out and you're not rich. You, you, you know, so that's, that's, I think the fundamental issue. And like I said, we've seen this across a number of different, you know, trade policy, economic policy, war decisions, uh, health policy, energy policy. We keep seeing it. It's not just in energy, which makes me think it's more uh, it's it's more the ideology than it is competency, but it's a little bit of both. And then um, you tweeted out the other day, the law of one price says something can't trade two different prices in two different currencies, X trade friction. So golden oil now priced in USD and CNY and the gold. So the gold oil ratio cannot be different from different in USD versus CNY. So and the implications of this have quietly begun manifesting. So can you kind of go into exactly what you mean there and what kind of implications are we seeing of this? Yeah, so it sets up an arbitrage, right? So fundamentally, the Shanghai Gold Exchange is much more physically based. They are doing a lot more physical volume in Shanghai, uh, connected with Hong Kong, um, than they do in London. London and New York, but London is really has been long been the center of the unallocated gold markets, uh, where you could have, it's been estimated anywhere 20, 50, 100 paper ounces of unallocated outstanding for every physical ounce. Shanghai is much less levered than that. It's very physically driven. Once you price both in, in, in dollars and yuan, that's sort of step one. The key, and this is why I've thought the yuan oil contract and, and the increasing shift uh, of the marginal barrel to yuan, it's still a tiny percentage of global volumes, but it's happening. Um, it's been accelerated a lot by the, by the Russian war. Um, is once oil, physical oil begins trading in yuan, now you've got something. For the reason we just talked about, right? We all just said that capping oil was stupid. It wouldn't work. Oil's going to move. It's fungible. It's very difficult to restrict. You can, whatever. Okay. Gold is easy to manipulate. Oil is not. Because the gold stock to flow ratio is 60-65, right? So all the gold in the world outstanding is still there, right? So that's 60-65 times more gold than new gold is created every year. Oil's stock to flow ratio, like when inventories are really high in oil, it's like 1.2. And when inventories are really low, the stock to flow ratio in oil is like 1.1. Okay, so once oil begins to trade in yuan, it sets up an arbitrage where if the gold to oil ratio, and you can substitute in gas, you can substitute in whatever, just gold to oil for uh, gold to commodities, but gold to oil ratio, if the gold to oil ratio in Shanghai in the East is higher than in London, let's say gold buys you 25 barrels an ounce, and in London, it buys you 20. You can go to London. You can short 20 barrels of oil, buy your one ounce of gold, take it to China. You sell the one ounce of gold. You get your 25 barrels of oil in China. You take your oil. You pay back your 20 barrels short. You keep your five barrels for free. Then you do it again. Wash, rinse, repeat. And what happens to gold store? Now, remember, in London, there's 100 ounces, 50 ounces, 20. Who knows? It's highly levered for every one actual physical ounce. So what happens to London gold inventories? They start going down, 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 down. What happens when those get too low? We know, because we saw in the 60s. The price of gold goes, boom. What happens as the price of gold goes up? Inflation expectations go up. What happens when inflation expectations go up? The bond market sells off. What happens when the bond sell market sells off too high when Western sovereign debt is as high as it is? What do the central banks have to do? They have to print money. So having this gold to oil ratio, having gold and oil in yuan, it's the oil side that facilitates this because they can't stop the oil. You can you can embargo the gold. In fact, we have been sanctioning Russia's gold, right? It's like gold is so irrelevant, yet the United States government is sanctioning it. Why is that? Um, 
it's not because they're selling that much gold to finance this war. It's like it's a it's a rounding error relative to what they're selling in oil and gas. If you have a spread and now the spread, how do you achieve a spread? Well, if you're the PBOC, it's real simple. You curtail imports for a second. Boom. Spread goes up. OK, now if the spread goes up. Hey, I can short oil there, take it, bring the gold over here, exchange the gold here. Once the gold's in China, it never leaves, by the way. Boom, now I get my 25 barrels here. I replace my cover, my 20 barrels short. I keep five barrels for free just by buying gold. Just by draining London of gold, I get free oil. Now, is this happening in a large way yet? No. But as it starts to happen, what you're going to start to see is you're going to see gold start to separate from the factors that have historically held it. The chart I showed on that tweet was US real rates. People have been scratching their heads. Why has gold not collapsed with what real rates have done? Real rates are the highest they've been since like 07. And gold is just like, do do do, 1900, 1850, 2000, 18, like it ain't dropping. It should be at 1200 or 1400 if real rates were still the key driver. But as this starts to happen, real rates start losing their effect on it. Now, real rates aren't the only factor, right? The geopolitical, the sanctioning of FX reserves, except there are a number of other factors. But what you're going to start to see are oil markets start to influence and eventually dominate rates, in my opinion, as a factor on gold. And you're seeing that. So that's why I think that's what I think is 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 so interesting. And you know, I first set up this arbitrage for clients. I showed it in a report in like 2016 or 2017. Um, and so when it finally launched, it was really interesting to see the reaction of markets. Gold and Chinese government bonds have outperformed treasuries by 70 and 40 percent since the Yuan oil contract launched. Really interesting. So I, that's to me this arbitrage, and that's the law of one price. Gold and oil in two different currencies, you can use gold. Now, if gold was fully reserved in London, this ARB wouldn't necessarily be there, or at least as reserved as it is in China. But it's not. Um, and so that's that's why it's so interesting to me. If you if you take the the this is I remember this is something you also said in a recent podcast right if you kind of take the bigger historical view like uh, for a very long time now uh, oil has been traded in the U.S. dollar and I think this made a lot of sense particularly also as long as the United States were the industrial powerhouse of the world and the main producer of the world but as industry has shifted or is shifting gradually we'll see how this is going to play out with you know reshoring and friendshoring but hypothetically let's say that Asia is becoming again or will remain one of the major producers in the world right doesn't that also create an incentive tend to have a gradual i don't think it's going to happen very fast but at least i think it's worthwhile talking about it that also of course asian currencies particularly the yuan are getting more attractive because you can actually buy stuff with it right you you sell them your oil and then you use the yuan and you know buy i don't know an airport that they can build for you uh you know your, your pipeline network whatever it then is and kind of to take even the the, the more kind of broader view i mean isn't then still, despite anything we hear, right, power not just connected to your GDP numbers and, and you know, to these raw numbers, but kind of to whether or not your country can actually produce something. I think you also mentioned this once you see it with Russia. Everybody was mocking the Russians and said, ha ha, it's a gas station that pretends to be a country. It's all very funny. But if uh, you're the only gas station in town and you happen to also be the only <laughs> the only gun producer, you have a pretty a pretty strong position, even though, again, you you. You can, it's easy to mock them, but it seems that when push comes to shove, they have the things that, re that really matter. And isn't that also partially true for China? Have we not become almost too complacent uh, in the last decades of, of globalization and forgotten that being the world's financial hub and the, being the iPhone designers alone is probably not enough, that you also need to have an industrial uh, kind, of, kind of base to actually produce something? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I took a lot of flack for saying Russia had a lot more leverage than most people thought based on a very simple calculus. If you subtract Russia's oil and gas production from world market, Russia's 17, last numbers I saw, 17% of the global oil export market. If you take 17% of the world's oil off the global export market, oil's going to be, I don't know the number, 200, 300, 400, it's just a huge number. And well before that, 
the U.S. Treasury market, the, 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 the European sovereign bond market, global bond markets would absolutely freaking implode. And before that happened, the Fed would come in and they would buy it all. They would have to. They'd have to bail out the treasury market, the corporate market, the mortgage-backed market, the euro dollar market, the Fed's balance sheet. Before they let that happen, Fed's balance sheet would go from $9 trillion to $50 trillion in like three months, and the dollar would suffer. And it was a very simple calculus. And I think Putin understands this fundamentally, if you look at some of the things he said. And our politicians, save a couple, don't get it. Because they've they they are they've been so separated over a lifetime of dollar equals oil. Well, I just have to print this dollar and I get real stuff. That they have it is as you put it, globalization gone too far. So is there? It has gone too far. The U.S. military has been warning about this for years. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States, Admiral Admiral Michael Mullen, said in 2010, in a in a book by Edward Luce. Um, called Time to Start Thinking, um, America in the Age of Dissent is the name of the of, of, of the book. He said, this is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is, is sort of like the head of like the military council. And he said, we're borrowing money from China to build weapons to face down China. This is a failed strategy. This is our, this is by far our biggest threat. This was 2010. Finally, after COVID, mainstream Washington started to wake up, but we wasted 10 years in the meantime. And so this leads to exactly that dynamic. And, and by the way, there were industry leaders, uh, um, Andy Grove, we, we've got to set aside the mantra of computer chips or potato chips. Why does it matter? Um, DARPA says, DARPA, the United States Advanced Research Product Projects Agency said, in order to uh, invent, you must make. Right now, we're turning ourselves into wholesalers. We're not making anything, and so we're not developing. And so you've seen the pace of innovation in China, not, not necessarily aggregate amounts of innovation, but the pace of innovation in China and in Southeast Asia more broadly, relative to the pace of innovation in America over the last 10 to 15 years, it's not even close. Like you can see in research papers, you can see in patent applications, and yes, some of them are bullshit in China, but whatever. You can see it in the pace of growth. It's not even close. They've been out innovating us. Um, the, you know, they've been out innovating us in a lot of different ways, at least. Uh, but it gets to your fundamental point, which is if you make stuff, then you gain uh, relative power over time, if you're willing to play the long game. So uh, Josh Wolf uh, gave a great testimony to Congress about three, about three, four months ago. In it, he said, the Chinese can make, you know, end-to-end -end nuclear uh, fission reactors, and they can do it for about $2 billion per gigawatt. He said that same nuclear fission facility costs $12 billion in America. A gigawatt's a gigawatt. So what that tells you on a gigawatt basis, the dollar is 83% overvalued relative to the yuan, right? 12, two divided by 12 or 12, right? 83%. And, and, and Josh went on to highlight to Congress, look, that is what it is, but now they're using it for diplomacy. Hey, we're going to come to Africa. You're short water. We're going to go to the Middle East. You're short water. We can get you, you're next to an ocean. All we need is a big source of power to run a desalination plant. Let us build you a nuke plant for $2 billion. We will give you free water. You will be politically popular. You can grow. Then we'll build infrastructure on electricity off that as well. And as Josh said, now these countries are locked into China for 30 years for the parts, for the maintenance, for the service. And then it's an easy ask. Hey, why don't you shift that invoice over to Yuan? Like this is what the Americans did to the Brits. And, and we're literally, they're running the same playbook. We were patient then. We're not patient anymore, right? It's like, what's the quarter? Are they going to beat the quarter? What's the CPI number this month? Uh, when's the election? Like, we've become like a nation of short-term crack addicts. Uh, and they're just blah, 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 blah. So that's, like, I, I bring up that nuclear example because it's a perfect example of what you just said, which is over time, that's what's happening. Now, there is a greater awareness of that. Um and we're fighting back and we but ultimately 
it requires a reshoring. And then it gets back to a political question in the U.S. Reshoring is going to be very inflationary. It's going to be great for growth, yeah. but it's going to be very inflationary. And so, again, very inflationary means rates on bonds have to go up a lot. But because we didn't work the debt down to GDP to a level where rates going up doesn't make the U.S. government insolvent, we have to sacrifice the bond market. The Fed has to come in and do yield curve control because we did the order of operations wrong because our people thought they could be Volcker and they couldn't be Volcker because of the debt level. So that's where we are. Like in every day that we don't do this, the Chinese are like, hey, you want a nuke? You want a nuke? You want a nuke? Everybody gets a nuke. Right? It's like the Oprah memes. Like you can have a nuke. You can have a nuke. You can have great. And in five years, over the next five years, they're going to switch the invoicing from dollars to yuan slowly so that they don't disrupt anything. And paradoxically, by the way, that's going to make the dollar stronger against the yuan, not weaker, because you're going to be reducing the global dollar supplies against big dollar demand. And you're going to be increasing yuan supplies globally against not much yuan demand. So the yuan, people are going to be looking at the yuan falling against the dollar going, look, we're winning. And it's like, no, no, you're not. You're not. It's like, so um, absolutely. It's, it's, we're starting to wake up to it yet. There's a apocryphal quote by Churchill. The Americans always do the right thing after we've tried everything else. We've tried everything else. So I think we're starting to do the right thing. I just, I hope we can do it faster because right now we're not doing it fast enough to sort of win this great competition. Well, I think also, don't you think, I mean, it's part of our bureaucratic processes. I mean, if we want to say build a mine here, it takes 10 years just to get a permit. <laughs> so, you know, and we're already 10 years behind. So we, we have a problem. Well, that's exactly right. And and you see you see this issue referred to in quotes where they're taken a little bit out of context and like so Larry Fink, where he's like, Yeah, hey, we love autocratic governments or whatever he said. We love authoritarian governments, or Charlie Munger and Buffett saying we you know, we wish we could do things more like China. Like I don't think they're saying we want enough, but what they're saying is is like when we built the Eisenhower Highway system in this country, it was like, it's getting built and here's where it's going. And there were some politics around it. And as a practical matter, guess where it usually was routed through? The, through the poorer sections of every city. And they were paid out on their houses, eminent domain, get out of your house, go somewhere else. We're running the highway through here. Um, the Cold War, I think, gave sort of an impetus to, to that to that. Um, that reaction time being shorter. Whereas now, like you said, it, it, between the environmental stuff, um, the political stuff, and then, you know, just the incentives of, of like the status quo of these politicians in, in Congress and around Congress and the lobbyists, if they just stay there, they're going to get rich, like really rich. And so it's not really in their interest to do anything radical that pisses anybody off because again, then they get kicked out of the cool kids club. And like, it's all works great until like, they're not thinking of the tragedy of the commons problem, which is they're going to wake up one day and they're worth, you know, a lot of money. And, you know, the inflation has eaten away that a lot of money, but maybe they don't care. Maybe it's just, so there's a, it, it's, it's a political problem ultimately in terms of, and I don't know how you fix it. But, but so in, in a to kind of to put it in the most blunt terms, so basically you're gonna need a crisis to to kind of you know kind of break the the stalemate. As you said, you you're gonna need a certain amount of pain to have a reversal or a change in these policies. I mean, I know this sounds frustrating, but um, the, the the as long as we can kick the can down the road, we're gonna kick the can down the road. Of course, the longer we do this, the greater the necessary pain will be. But it seems from if I put the piece, bits and pieces together, what you just said, I, I don't see any other solution. In a solution is the wrong word, but I don't see any other way to kind of know shake people awake in a sense. And as you just mentioned, right, that, that certain things need to change because as long as things are just you know seem smooth, everybody gets you know goes along with it. But at some point, un unless it's inflation or or anything else, it's it's very hard to say why why anybody would change anything. Yeah, and that's ultimately goes to sort of the structure of the election cycle as well. Like as long as we're focused on a two year election cycle, you know they'll kick the can. But ultimately. Um, it's going to require that, that that crisis, like you said, I think. And then it's got to be something that can't be papered over. And I think mm -hmm. that's why energy is so important. You know, if it's just, it's just, I don't want to minimize, but if it's just a mortgage crisis, you can extend and pretend that. If it's commercial real estate, we can extend and pretend that. There are things we can do. Uh, 
if I show up at the corner and there's no frigging gas, like there's no pretend in that. Or if I show up at the corner and the gas is six bucks, there's no pretend in that. There, that's why I think the energy side of it is so critical as a forcing factor. Yeah. Go ahead. No, because because this this is another one of my favorite Luke Roman quotes that I have been using up and down. But I usually give you credit for it. The uh, the the legendary trying to ride two horses with one ass. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> so do you think we'll see kind of more? I mean, we saw it a little bit, and I think this I think also was what's for our listeners and viewers. This is really super fascinating. I mean, we turned a little bit of a blind eye to Iranian oil exports, but thereby, of course, kind of encouraged the very regime that is also financing Hamas. And we kind of all saw what happened over the last couple of uh, of weeks and, and uh, similarly with Venezuela. Do you think that politicians will continue to try doing this a little bit to say, well, you know, we're going to go to this somewhat, quote unquote, unsavory regimes and tell, why don't you mine for resources? Why don't you, you know, drill for oil and gas so that on the same time we can tell our domestic audiences will be off fossil fuels by 2030 when in truth they kind of just try to go to these other places uh, to get it, but thereby, of course, giving them significant leverage. And, and you know, and of course, they've follow their own geopolitical interest. I don't know what the idea, for example, was with Iran. What did people expect they are going to do with the money? I mean, this is, as you would say, I guess, but this is no grand surprise. I mean, that, that this will go into places where we don't like it to go was, was kind of to be expected. But apparently the, you know, the broader green or environmental lobby was more important to placate than to say, okay, there is an energy problem that we should solve domestically. Yeah. I think they're going to keep doing what you said, which is, hey, you know, yes, we've been, you know, trying to hurt you for 20 years, Venezuela, but now they're showing up at Venezuela's door and be like, buddy, hey, <laughs> about the whole coup thing, you know. And it's something a friend of mine actually in energy markets said to me 20, 25 years ago, maybe, yeah, maybe it's 15 years ago, say it was 15, 15, 18 years ago, but it's. And it's, and it's something that Larry Summers said earlier this year that a senior foreign diplomat told him. He said, you know, what I get from the Chinese is an airport. What I get from the Americans is a lecture. And that's what my friend said 15, 18 years ago, which is like, we show up in these countries and we want to tell them how to do things, what to do, this. They have all these political conditions and, and the Chinese just want to do business. And then it's ruthless and, oh, great. They just want to do business. The Chinese show up with a check and the workers and the supplies and say, all we want to do is build this for you, develop a relationship. And it's, trust me, it's, it's at least mutually beneficial. And, and it's, it's in a lot of times the debt diplomacy that many people say it is, but by the way, is what we've been doing for 60 years after world war two. It's it's no frigging different. Um, so it, I think the American politicians will keep doing this, but my point is, is that, there was never really serious competition before, call it 2010, 2012. Um, and now there is. Now, if, you know, you take a meeting with the Americans and then you take a meeting with the Chinese, it's OK, I'm going to get my lecture and then I'm going to sit here and the Chinese are going to say, well, we can build you, you know, a new plant for one sixth the price of the Americans. And actually for you can get six for the price of theirs. And then we can rig that up and we can also uh, build for you using some of your labor, 5,000 kilometers of high speed rail and train stations over the next decade. And, 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 and the Americans are like, well, just, you know, make sure you're abiding by the correct environmental and political ideology. And then we'll come back in six months and talk if I get reelected. And that's sort of like the, a, a, a cart, you know, hmm. a cartoon indication of like the issue. And so in the meantime, you know, the Chinese will have built like, you know, 500 miles of, electro, of, of, of rail already by the time they, the Americans come back to check and see if they've done the right political environmental uh, um, ideology. So it's a little bit like when you've got a house for sale and when you have one buyer, buyer's got all the power. When you've got two buyers, seller's got a lot more power. And I think this is is has been and remains a wildly underappreciated side of what China's doing. Don't tell me about what China's like. I know all those things. That's fine. They are a very credible, large power that provides a second bid to whatever the Americans are telling you. 
And that changes everything over time, particularly when we keep doing things. I want to be as, as suboptimally as we, the Americans, have done them in the international arena over the last 20, 25 years. I absolutely agree. Well, we're coming up on the hour. I don't want to take too much of your time, even though I feel like we could sit here for you know another three hours. But we definitely will have you come on again. Um, kind of want to leave us with uh, some parting words of advice, perhaps. Maybe what you know, what should we as investors kind of be looking at, or what are you kind of keeping your eye on for you know the next you know two to five years? Next two to five years, I think, are going to be really good for commodity investors broadly, and I th and I think they're going to be not good for bond investors on a real basis. I'm not saying you can't have bond rallies or so that, but I think there is a structural change in the commodity supply side away from cyclical uh, movements. And I think there's a growing recognition of the supply side on Western sovereign debt uh, that I think is, is, is dawning. And I, I think those two are coming close to sort of realizing uh, the, the, the reflexivity and the feedback between the two, I think is, start, is, is starting to become a more or is about to become a more understood dynamic. So I think as an investor, particularly when you overlay the geopolitical situation, um, I think it's I think commodities secularly, you know, whatever are, are probably a heavier weighting than they've been in, on a secular basis over the next two to five years than they have been in a while. And I think long term Western sovereign debt, which has sort of been a benchmark of portfolios for 40 years, like the last three years. Yes, they're the worst three years in Treasury markets since like eighteen hundred. So I don't know if it's going to keep getting. I mean, it could get that bad, but I think it's. I think the the, the from here the losses in West and long term Western sovereign debt will be on a real basis. I think they'll be relative to commodities, um, not necessarily nominally. Um, and so I think we're in the early days of that recognition. And as that happens, you know, this the Western bond markets are, I don't know, or global bond markets are 130 trillion dollars. You know, commodity markets are what, like the oil market is the single biggest in the world at what, two trillion a year, something like that. Like the commodity markets are so small relative to the amount of Western sovereign debt out there, and particularly it's long term sovereign debt. I just think we're in the very early innings of a shift out of long term Western sovereign debt into things that will better preserve purchasing power, be that commodities gold, equities, Bitcoin, and there'll be fits and starts to it. But to me, as I look out over the next two to five years, like that's sort of the happy outcome. That's sort of what has to happen to sort of square all, all the circles. If that doesn't happen, um, you have to paint a really, really like doomer negative picture. So I think it's, it's really, that's what we're going to, I think we're going to see that as a broad theme over the next two to five years. Excellent. Ralph, did you have any final questions? No, I would have so many, but <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe just, just one last one because this just popped up and I have to ask you. Um, if if kind of there is then this shift out of, of, of sovereign debt marks, I mean, do you think that this will become this? Because I mean, in Europe, of course, do you think that at some point this is really going to become a problem for the welfare state that these countries will not no longer be capable of financing? You know, we're getting older. So basically, we're going to need more money for our equivalent of Medicare, Medicaid. But if people are no longer willing to, to buy government debt, right, if they shift into commodities, if they shift into whatever else is available, do you think there is a real possibility in 5, 10, 15 years that unless these countries change their entire economic structure to something that makes it worthwhile giving them money, but they simply are going to run out of money because nobody is going to giving it to them anymore? Yeah, it's it's a problem. Um, you need some sort of productivity miracle uh, to justify it. Um, and failing that, uh, you're going to need to significantly reduce the real value of those Western sovereign entitlements. Um, I mean, ultimately, people say, well, 
in the case of America, we owe all our debt in our own currency, so we can't default. And yes, and Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security uh, are not owed in dollars. Social Security are owed in dollars, but they're inflation adjusting dollars. Even if they understate the inflation, they're still. But Medicare, Medicaid is 20, 30 trillion dollars, maybe more, 60 trillion. I don't know. An off balance sheet liabilities. It's a, it's a debt, but it's not owed in dollars. It's owed in hips and knees and pharmaceuticals and doctor's time, healthcare goods and services. And that is very reminiscent of the of the wartime reparations post World War One in Germany, where it was owed in gold marks. You couldn't inflate it away. You couldn't just print it. So the more inflation rises, unless you're willing to, you know, stiff your doctors and Pfizer is willing to lose money on every pill and Stryker's willing to lose money on every hip, the they're they're gonna the it, it gets away from them. So you either have an energy productivity miracle or or a significant restructuring of those liabilities via either cutting people off and dealing with the political consequences, which in my opinion is very unlikely, or some period of high and possibly very high inflation that just reduces the real value uh, of those obligations or of other obligations, at least relative to those. And, and that's, it's, it's a really, it's a really big challenge. It's a really big challenge. I really wanted to end on a cheerful note. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and on that note, Luke, um, how do people get a hold of you and how can they subscribe to your publication? Sure. So they can find uh, information about our different institutional mass market products at FFTT-LLC.com. And as you guys both know, I've got a pretty active Twitter feed at, uh, at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. And we'll put all that information and in the bottom uh, when we post the uh, when we post the web the webcast. So um, again, thank you so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate it, and we definitely love to have you on again. Thanks for having me. It was great talking with you guys. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. 